It's nice to be with you all. My name is Ben, and I used to be a pastor here. But that was a long, long time ago. It was my privilege a couple weeks ago when Kyle asked me, hey, would you be able to come up and preach in June? And uh, I was able to work out my schedule to be here today. And I think it turned out all right because he doesn't have a voice. So as much as, as much as I would have loved to hear him try to do that, that would be awesome. It is really a pleasure for me to be with you. Um, uh, in 1998, uh, I was invited to become the youth pastor at this church. And that means that I recognize some of you. There's some familiar faces out there, and it's so wonderful to be with you all. Kirsten, my wife, and I at the time were married about four or five months. We've now been married much longer than that. We had our two boys here at the time, and this is them now. That's Zach and that's Sam, and they used to run around here all the time, and they thought they owned the place. Uh, this, they're now in their, um, Zach's in his third year at Bible college, and Sam's in his second year. Both are looking at ministry, and I just wanted to share a picture because I know some of you know them, and I know some of you actually have been faithful to be praying for them, and I just wanted to thank you for that. They're not the only ones in our family. We also have uh, girls in our home, which is awesome sometimes. Um, (laughs) These are them. Obviously, you can see Kirsten there again looking as though she could be one of my daughters, not my wife. And then in the middle there is Bobby Grace, uh, who we adopted and started that process while we were in Abbotsford. And then Amy, who uh, is in grade 10, and a great girl, and then an adopted daughter named Michaela. That's at Easter. That's the only time I wear a tie is at Easter. Um, And so I just wanted to share a picture of them with you because... In a way, for me today, it's kind of like coming home. And that it reminded me that church at its very best is family. Church at its very best is family. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. If you want to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4, we're going to get there in a minute. But before we do that, uh, I don't know about you, but, but my picture, my idea of church has changed maybe since COVID. Uh, I'm a pastor at Shushwap Community Church, uh, that's in the Shushwap, which is that way, and um, we are a multi-site church, we have four campuses, we have four locations, one in Chase, Sereno, Salmon Arm, and Sycamus. I have the privilege and the blessing of working with all of the campuses and the pastors there, uh, and, and to say that we survived COVID would be a very, very, um, you know, true statement, kind of barely. We had three groups split away from our four campuses to start new things because they didn't feel they were getting what they needed when we went into lockdown. And it caused us to begin to think, okay, who do we, how do we view the church? What is the church? And what we were told was, time and time again, that the church, by definition, is a gathering. That church in the Greek is ekklesia, and ekklesia means gathering. But what COVID showed me, and I don't know about you, but what it showed me was what it's so much more than a gathering because the church never stopped existing when she wasn't gathered, right? And so as we began to think and wrestle with kind of this new reality and struggle with what we want church to be versus what it was, it really just dawned on me that church is like a family, right? In a family, you've got Different people who are kind of familiar, 
right? There's certain traits both in their physical nature but also in their personality that, that kind of define and make up their family of origin. They're different, but they're familiar. There's different levels of maturity within a family, right? There's roles and responsibility in a family, just like at church. It's a messy, right? My sister, uh, she has a sign on her uh, in their house by their kitchen table. And you see these kind of all over the place. There's these kind of nice, wonderful statements. And hers says, family is where your story begins. And I thought that's, that's very nice. And if we had one at our home, it would say, family is where sin happens. Um, and uh, I think that's another way that family is kind of like church, isn't it? It's messy. It's hard. There's different opinions and different ideas and different ways of, you know, struggling with, with what is expected. It's messy and it's sometimes very, very difficult. See, church is, is kind of like a family, but more than that, it's not just like a family, it actually is. Because what we read in Scripture is that we have all been adopted by a father. We have been invited to identify as his children by the firstborn, our better elder brother, Jesus. And that we relate to one another as brother and sister. It means it's messy, it means it's hard, it means it's permanent though. The family of God is God's idea to reach the world. It's messy, it's hard, it's difficult, but that's what he's chosen to do. And I think in doing that, in taking us as broken and dysfunctional family, he's able to show that he's still working and still alive because the church in and of itself, is a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that we're here today, some 2,000 years after the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and convicted the people and convinced them that Jesus was alive and formed what we now know as the church. Kyle says you're working through the book of Acts, and so he asked me to preach from Acts chapter and, and so I want to invite you there uh, in verse 23, where we pick up the story of, of um, Peter and John after they were, after they were uh, convicted, after they were tried, after they were threatened, after they were told not to do anything in the name of Jesus, right? They healed a man, they did a good thing, but the people who saw that thing and, and feared that thing wanted to control that thing, and so they told them that that good thing that they did in Jesus' name they could no longer do. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. I'm going to read down through 37, and then we're going to stop, and then we're going to talk a little bit more. So if you have a Bible or an app, let's read together. After they were released, they went to be with their own people, and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why to the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers assemble against the Lord and against his Messiah. Quote, for in fact, in this city, both 
Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. In Acts chapter 2, we have this incredible description of what the church was like. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They ate together. They shared everything. They began to go on mission, and that's what Peter and John do. They're on mission. They're speaking the name of Jesus, and it's changing people's lives, and it upsets the religious authorities, the same religious authorities who six weeks or so earlier had crucified Jesus. Peter and John are brought before this group of men and told that they are not to teach or speak at all in the name of Christ. And we see that in verse 18. They're continuing his work. They're continuing it, the same work of Christ by the same spirit. And they're doing the very things that Christ called them to do. The resistance, it's important to note, is a resistance to the gospel. Okay? And what they find is that they're fighting a spiritual war. Not a cultural war, a spiritual war. The opposition is coming against the gospel being preached. And the disciples are preaching, not only is the gospel true, but it works. It can change lives. It can heal diseases. It can save your souls. Instead of living in fear, anger, and shame, you can know a God who loves you, accepts you, supports you, encourages you, and is fighting for you. And so they're proclaiming this. I picture Peter and John coming and standing tall before the Sanhedrin. I don't think, though, at second thought, that that's maybe the right way of looking at it. Because they're afraid. They come back and they're scared. Because the trauma of witnessing what they had seen done to Jesus is still fresh in their minds. And it's a critical point for the life of the church. Are we going to fulfill the mission that Christ has given us, even if it means that we've got to face the cost of what it cost Christ himself? And they're afraid. They're struggling. What do we do? Do we protest? Nah, they prayed. They got the people together and they prayed. Right? And I want us to take a look just for a minute at how they prayed and what they prayed. When fear became their greatest threat, they worshipped. They lift their voices together to God. They had one voice. There isn't a worship leader. There isn't one man standing up and saying, this is what we're going to do. No, together they come and they lift up their voices as one. We don't know who led the service. We don't know who chose the scripture. We don't know who said the prayer. Why? Because that didn't matter. What mattered was, was that they needed God's help. And so they pray. And miraculous things happen when God's people pray. Can I, amen? Just looking around. Okay, somebody. All right. They pray. Sovereign Lord. They appeal to God's sovereignty. Why? Because they needed to remember God's sovereignty. They needed to remember that God was in control, that God had a plan, that God would accomplish his purposes because God is sovereign. There is no greater power in the universe than their God. And so they appeal to him, which is the proper person, the proper name to appeal to God by when we're afraid. 
God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my life. I'm afraid for my future. I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid. Be sovereign to me. Show me your size, your magnitude. Remind me that you had no beginning, you had no end. Remind me that your, your purposes are never overwhelmed. The name answers their fear. And then they quote scripture. They pray scripture. You who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they pray Psalm chapter 2. It's really interesting. This is, these are Christian people. This is the church. And yet they identify with David as one of the forerunners of Christ, our father David. Right? They're seeing themselves as in the continuity of God's purpose from the Old Testament even into the New Covenant, into the New Testament. They're identifying with the historical truth, what? That there is always opposition to God. David would write about that often. David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, was constantly in conflict. And they appeal to God on the basis of what David has said as a part of their prayer. And they look and they say, we are in the same situation, that together there are gathered against your servant, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Who is against them? Everybody. The rulers of Israel, the rulers of Rome. The godly people, the people of Israel, godly. The Gentiles, the irreligious were against them. Everybody's against them. It's another indicator of the persecution. They were alone. They were all isolated. Everybody didn't like them. Right? And so they pray, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They knew in this moment that their faith and their fear were in tension. That the battle between their flesh and their spirit was strong. So they appealed to God, a power outside of them, to give them what they need. And what happens? God shows up and shakes the room. And that's awesome. God validates them. He sees something worthwhile in their prayer to manifest his presence with them. To just shake the room. Made no sense. It wasn't a coincidence. It had to be God. And he validates their need and affirms them in it. And what happens? They have the boldness that they're looking for. The church becomes defined by them. It's what united them. It's even what liberated them. Verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own but instead held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands and, or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had need. So they get bold, and they begin to preach, and they begin to share. It's really interesting that when God showed up and they see that their fear has been answered by his affirmation, they can begin to be liberated to live on mission, to preach and to share. It was the boldness that led to generosity in sacrifice, and this is what empowered the mission. It was spiritually resourced from God, and it was physically resourced by generosity. And what's incredible is that they were united in one heart and one mind around God answering their need. 
the gospel meant everything to them. It wasn't just something they were going to believe because it was true. They believed it because it worked. There was no shame. They weren't ashamed of the gospel because they weren't ashamed of their need. And their needs were being met within the community. So as the gospel is being proclaimed, each one, it's said, is being satisfied by the resources being given to them, that they're able to give more of their resources. That would be physically, emotionally, and spiritually. No one was ashamed of the gospel because no one was ashamed of their need. Isn't that interesting? There is an honesty around this group of people, right? An honesty that says, I need help. I need charity. I need encouragement. I need affirmation. There's vulnerability. Honesty and vulnerability was what allowed them to experience the power of the gospel in their lives. It's what united them together. There was no one without need amongst their group. And they were honest about it. And what happened? We seek almost this kind of idealistic, almost utopian group of people. Right? It's just awesome. And it's functioning properly. They're looking for needs. They're seeing those needs being met. God is working in their midst. The gospel is being preached and people are getting saved. And as we read in Acts chapter 2, every day people were joining the church. So I guess the question is, what happened? What happened? Because we have been struggling to reclaim Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 to get this feeling back. What happened? Well, Churches where sin happened. And within a chapter, in Acts chapter 5, we see it slowly start to devolve. Where self-importance becomes more important than mutual blessing. Ananias and Sapphira, you're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. We see them being threatened to define what they're going to believe by outside influences. The Judaizers would get a foothold in their midst. The Gnostics would get a foothold in their midst. There were religious groups trying to, to take power and take control. There were irreligious groups trying to take power and take control. Everybody was defining their faith the way they wanted to define it. And as these groups got in, there was an individualization. Well, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe what the Judaizers are saying, or I'm going to believe what the Gnostics are saying, or I'm going to follow just even my favorite preacher. Right? If they had podcasts, they would do what we do. They'd have their favorite preacher. Right? I follow Keller. I follow Piper. I follow Andy Stanley. I follow John MacArthur. I follow David Jeremiah. I can look around my church on a Sunday morning, and I know the tribes that are there. <laughs> and I look around, and I know that for a lot of these people, I am not their pastor. Their pastor lives in Southern California <laughs> and has never met them and doesn't know them. And that they really like. <laughs> they really like that. Slowly, we see this kind of fragmenting, almost shattering. And the church loses its witness in two ways. It becomes like the culture, or at times it would separate completely from the culture. And within a generation... The Apostle Paul is trying to convince the church to return to being a family. 
In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul shows us his pastor's heart. Not a difficult church. They were super critical of him. Um, they complained about him. Do you know what they would say about him? They said his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. That's cold, bro. <laughs> he looks small and his preaching is terrible. As a pastor, I empathize with Paul. That kind of hurts, right? Oh, you know, we know that's out there. But, but Paul actually heard it. And they're critical of Paul and they, they don't want, you know, they want to define their faith their own way. And Paul continually says, listen, it's about the mission. It's about our responsibility. It's about loving one another in such a way that people will be drawn in. It's about loving one another in such a way that we will be bold in our going out. That when we know we need the gospel and we see how the gospel answers our need, we will go into the world with faith and with hope and with love. But I fear, sometimes we're more defined by fear or anger or shame. And this tension's in place. When the church was afraid, they prayed. They didn't get angry. They prayed. And God showed up. And God met them and God ministered them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he calls the church back to being distinct but also influential, to not separating from society, but being in society to influence society, to not be in society and be influenced by society, but instead to be distinct, to be purposeful, and to remain true to the gospel. And he calls this Corinthian church back, and he does so by quoting the Old Testament. He says in chapter 4, no, it's chapter 6, uh, verse 16 and 17, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul reaches back into the Old Testament and brings a promise into the present moment, the present need of the church. And he says, you need to be restored in intimacy. You need to see that when you are together and when you're apart, but when you are identifying as the church, I am there with you. I will dwell and I will walk among you. The church is more than just a gathering. It's a place where God lives here not here, here, here in our hearts. Be restored back to that intimacy. That's the call. Know the love and the grace of God to meet your need. In order to, therefore, you need to be honest about your need. Be restored in the intimacy. Be restored back in adoption. What does he say? And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. As I've looked at over these last couple of years, and I'm kind of obsessed with trying to understand what went on. I look and I say, people just freaked out. Every puppy in my neighborhood is under two years old. <laughs> and this January, I made a mistake and I got one myself. <laughs> it was a terrible mistake. My otherwise predictable and happy life is now a puppy. Everything in my, and he's a, going to be a good dog, but he's, oh, I can't, I don't know why I did it. Anyways, I know I did it. My faith was fragile. 
Where I live, you shouldn't make any major life decision in January, right? You shouldn't. It's just a mistake because it's cold, it's dark, and I was watching All Creatures Great and Small one Sunday night after a really hard day at church, and, and then I was like, oh, those animals seem nice, and that seems like a nice time. Maybe I'll get a puppy, and I wrote a text, and, and then the next day I was like, Kirsten, I got a puppy, and she's like, what? And she didn't divorce me on the spot, which really should have told me. That, that I was safe and secure all the way along and I didn't need a puppy because I have a good wife and I got kids who love me and I got a church, I got a job, I live. But no, I needed, in that moment, I needed a puppy. And whether it was puppies or toilet paper or making bread, <laughs> when the world fell apart, people just wanted something immediate and comfortable. They needed to know they mattered. The removal of work, which I know a lot of us experienced, was a removal of our meaning, of our significance. And what was disappointing was that my church lived that out too. And we have the immediate presence of Christ in our midst. And we are identified as God's children. And we are given a responsibility here on this earth to testify to the fact that when the worst thing possible can happen, that is death, it doesn't have to be the end. But what do we do? I have a daily reminder, twice a day, daily reminder, that when things get hard, when my faith gets fragile, I will look for something immediate and comfortable. And that has helped me understand what's going on in my community. Paul calls them back. He says, you can't be separate from society, but you also can't look like society. You need to be restored in intimacy, and you need to be restored by adoption. For us, we've chosen to view COVID as a disruption, not an interruption. To really examine what our assumptions were going into it, and how and why we got blowed up. How and why this got really, really hard. COVID was an interruption. We just didn't stop going to restaurants for a couple of years. We really need to take a look and say, what are we offering our communities? What are we giving to the communities? Do I believe that the gospel is true and works? Right? That it's not just an intellectual agreement that I have in my life? Do I actually believe that it is the means by which I can live with security and significance on the earth? We have to. So for our church, we've identified three ways that needed to disrupt us. And if it's okay, I'd like to share that with you. Uh, first is how we pray and what we pray for. And we've seen that, that the way we were praying, the things we were praying for, needed to change. And so we've decided to just pray for a revival. And what we need is a movement of God to save people's souls. Not to save my, protect my rights. I need God to move. Prayer. It affects how we grow. How we move in our discipleship. Not what we know, but what we feel. So we are wrestling with, what does it mean to have a discipleship that is emotionally honest? Not just a list of different things we know, and therefore a list of things we do and we don't do. Rather looking and saying, how do fear, anger, and shame 
play out in our discipleship? Actually, how are those opportunities to experience God in new ways and in powerful ways? The church here shows us what you do when you're afraid. You cry out to God. When we're angry and we're facing injustice, what do we do? We cry out to God. When we're ashamed and we're guilty, what do we do? We cry out to God. Fear, anger, and shame are an opportunity to experience intimacy and experience the security and the significance that we get from being God's children. Fear, anger, and shame, we can allow us to lead us into sin or we can cry out to God in the midst of it all and have our hearts transformed. Jesus on the cross, right? He's hanging there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cries out with fear, afraid, with anger, and even shame because the sin of the world had been poured out on him. But he does not reject God. He does not walk away. What does he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusts by faith God's sovereignty and his power to resurrect. And when we're experiencing fear, anger, and shame, the essence of the fall in our own lives, it is a chance. It is a chance for us to declare our faith in a sovereign God and to receive hope that our lives can be resurrected and can be redeemed and to live in the love of God that is so powerful, that is so profound, that is so meaningful that you don't need anything else. Nothing else. Faith and hope and love, not fear, anger, and shame. It's changed how we hope to disciple, and it changed how we relate. Our church is moving from a membership model to a partnership model. What do I mean by that? Membership meant something, that word itself, membership, meant something different 50 years ago than it means now. Right? When you're a member of a golf club, who mows the lawn? Do you mow the lawn? No, somebody mows the lawn. Right, Doug? Yeah. If they aren't mowed right, do you get the lawnmower out and mow them right, Doug? No. You tell somebody that that lawn needs to be mowed, and they say, a member has just told us <laughs> that the greens are not the proper length. Changed my banking about a month ago. Do you know why? Because my membership was not bringing the privileges that I liked. So I got better privileges. We look and we see a proper word, the biblical word, for how we relate to one another really is about partnership and about participating together in this mission, serving one another in order that we might serve the church effectively. And so we've moved to a partnership model. I don't know if it's going to work or not. I really hope it does. But, but these three things are just a reminder that, that whatever God's purposes were around the pandemic, that if he had some, I think he had some. <laughs> that got a little weird. Um, God has purposes. God's, I think God's, what God wants to do to redeem COVID is to restore the church. And I'm into that. I'm down with that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, that when the church gathers together, Jesus is the worship leader. That Jesus is the one who says, here I am, Father, with the children you gave me. Here I am. Think about that for a second. 
when we're worshiping together, when we're encouraging one another, affirming one another, supporting one another, sharing with one another, whether that be in this room or in coffee shops or in living rooms, when we're doing that, Jesus is in our midst and he's leading us in worship. He's bringing us to the very place where we need to be in order to feel secure and in order to feel significant. And that, my friends, is the desperate need of the communities that we live in. Church is more than a gathering. Church is a family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that I got to come home today. I get to be with family. People I know and people I don't know, but people who I can safely say are brothers and sisters. Lord, we're a messy, dysfunctional family, and you know that. And I believe that it's our dysfunction that can actually show the world your power to do incredible things. There's no one person that is more important than another in our midst here. That the church in and of itself really serves under the lordship and the direction of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we surrender to your purposes. Your purposes to seek and save the lost, to restore, to renew, to redeem, to bring dead things back to life. We look forward to the day with all hope when you will return and all things will be made new. We look forward to the day when the last tear will be shed, when the last funeral will be held, when the last violent or abusive act will be done. We look forward to that day. But until that day, Lord Jesus, we surrender to communicate that you are coming, to declare with all boldness your resurrection. That Satan, who wants to convince us that death is the greatest power in the universe, was defeated when you came out of the grave. And that you showed those 12 disciples who would go to proclaim your resurrection with all great power, you showed them this great truth that God does love, that God does save, that God does and is building a kingdom. You, Lord Jesus, are God. You're our Savior. You're our Messiah. Move in our midst. Be pleased by our worship. In your name and for your glory, I pray. Amen.